Hello and welcome to Alexandra Marshall Live. Now normally I introduce this show by saying that we go off in search of Australia's culture warriors, but last week we were treated to the CPAC conference, that is the Conservative Political Action Conference, which you can watch here at ADH-TV, and all the culture warriors within shouting distance came here to Sydney and to ADH, and I've managed to wrangle one of them onto our show today, a former politician with a long and illustrious career that has continued his work for conservative politics beyond parliament into political action and commentary. I speak, of course, of the Honourable Erica Betts. Eric, welcome to the show. Wonderful to be on the program. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a real pleasure, Eric. And we have to start with CPAC, which is run by Andrew Cooper and brought to audiences all around Australia by the ADH-TV app. It's a conference that I've been attending since it was first, it first made its hop over the Pacific Ocean from America. And I remember we managed to capture a flag from some protesting Marxists and we christened the Keneally Cup and I think a vegan threw a soy latte at one of us as well. This time it was better behaved. What was it like being there? and seeing all the Conservative leaders meet with their Conservative voters because that doesn't happen very often. CPAC is a wonderful get-together for like-minded people who are at the moment under a lot of stress from the ABC and left-wing media and woke organisations. So it's very heartening to know that there are at least a thousand of your fellow Australians who are willing to pay the money to come to a conference, travel to the conference, so it is at some expense that they come, so you can be heartened by the fact that the 1,000 people that you're mingling with is just a representative group of literally millions of other Australians who think likewise. And look, to be treated with wonderful speeches from former Prime Minister Tony Abbott, uh, Deputy uh, Nationals Leader Bridget McKenzie, uh, Michelle from the Australian Christian Lobby. There were a wonderful array of speakers, including somebody from CPAC from Japan, CPAC from the United States. So you got the international flavour as well. It was a very heartwarming and reinvigorating uh, weekend. Uh, and yeah, wonderful, wonderful uh, opportunity to be there and meet so many like-minded people. Yeah, the uh, Japanese guy from CPAC is a really hot one. All the women come out from the coffee break to go and watch him. So he's a real star. <laughs> uh, but look, it's, people say, oh, you shouldn't have echoes, chambers and all the rest of that. But I think that's wrong. You really do need to have, if you've got a political movement, the members of that political movement to come together, to share ideas and to get some coherency to the movement. Do you think it's a good thing that uh, conservatives meet and should they meet more often? I think Conservatives should meet more often. Uh, the idea that CPAC is somehow an echo chamber is of course incorrect. If we were to meet all day, every day at CPAC, then we would be living in a bubble. It's a bit like the Canberra bubble, where people live and hear each other all day, every day. CPAC is one weekend in the year, and uh, that is where a lot of us are refilled with enthusiasm and learn new arguments and approaches to the issues of the day. And so uh, being refilled is uh, very important, but uh, not an echo chamber and uh, clearly not like the Canberra bubble. Oh yeah, that's definitely an echo chamber. That's actually more like a cone of silence <laughs> where they, they can't hear anything outside of the Canberra little tiny area they've got there. But every year the feeling gets stronger, at least for me, as you watch these public events. 
that there are two Liberal parties emerging. We've got what the ABC likes to call the far, 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 totally Nazi freedom-loving fascist right, which was previously known as Blue Ribbon Liberals to normal people. And then we have the very wet, limp, sort of slick, holier-than-thou corporate Liberals who keep getting their asses kicked every time an election rolls around. Are these two sides of the broad church separating or do you think they might be able to find some common ground and collapse back into a, co a coherent liberal movement? It is the common ground that clearly needs to be concentrated on. And uh, when people ask me, am I a conservative or whatever, I simply say, I signed up to the 17 we believe principles enunciated by Sir Robert Menzies. And in my home state of Tasmania, when I encourage people to join the Liberal Party, I simply give them a copy of that We Believe document and say, if you can agree with these 17 principles, then the Liberal Party is for you. However, if you can't, it doesn't make you a lesser person. It just means that the Liberal ethos is not one for you and uh, potentially another political party should be the one of your choice. The idea that the Liberal Party should seek to embrace everybody is to deny the fundamental values, virtues and principles enunciated in We Believe and set out by Robert Menzies. And Robert Menzies, uh, in the latter part of his life, did lament some of the drifting uh, within the Liberal Party. But now, look, that said, uh, the strength of the Liberal Party is being able to appeal to a broad cross-section of the community, but we always have to believe in our fundamental values. And if we stray from them, then I think we've got some issues. So, for example, when I took on, and it wasn't the flavour of the month at the time, I'd add, I think most people are into it now, but I took to task uh, the apologists for the communist dictatorship in Beijing. I even had liberals seeking to attack me and uh, I read out uh, principle number nine where Robert Menzies said uh, that we oppose the autocracy of communism and fascism. And I found it strange that I as a liberal had to defend myself against a fellow liberal who was uh, not agreeing with my attack on the dictatorial and brutal regime of Beijing. Uh, we have nothing in common. They're a dictatorship. We're a democracy. We believe in the rule of law. They have a corrupt uh, judicial system. So to attack the core of that government is completely different to attacking individual citizens of that country. And that is where we need a more in-depth discussion within the public uh, debate. But look, all that said, the future of the Liberal Party, I think, is uh, very strong, and especially under the leadership of Peter Dutton, he's making the gutsy calls of vote no to the referendum, putting nuclear energy onto the um, table of public discussion, I think, uh, onto the agenda. I think they're the things that the people of Australia want. And ultimately, and I remind people of this, that Paul uh, uh, Kelly and other journalists have opined over the years how terrible we were in re-electing John Howard as leader, how we had a death wish by electing Tony Abbott as leader. And what did both of those gentlemen do for us? One, 
massive landslide election victories. And so uh, just because the journalists and the uh, commentariat aren't behind us doesn't mean that the people of Australia aren't behind us. And that which uh, was commentated about for uh, John Howard and Tony Abbott is now the same commentary going towards Peter Dutton, which gives me hope that he has the capacity to deliver a landslide election victory like those two other gentlemen did. Well, you're totally right about uh, the communist China dictatorship. And we're an average of three generations removed from the Second World War, and there's barely anybody left alive who remembers the First World War. And I feel somehow that these words, words like communist and socialist and Marxist, they have no meaning to the younger generations. They don't actually understand when you say something is a communist regime. They don't envision things like uh, Stalin's cannibal island. They don't think about the gulags. They don't understand the restrictions on people's speech or what a citizen, what their life looks like under a communist regime. They think about it as what their Marxist lecturers have told them and, and uh, socialism to them is a free iPhone. And so it's very difficult when, uh, when you're trying to explain why it's so important to preserve your capitalist democratic system and how dangerous it can be to let these ideas in because they have no frame of reference for it. So you're quite right to stand up and say, listen, you know, China is not a democracy. They are a communist nation. You can't think they're going to obey the same rules that we do during foreign affairs. But I did like what you said about Tony Abbott and of course John Howard. When conservatives run real conservative leaders, they win elections. But right now, I don't know if you've noticed now that you've left social media, but social media and a lot of the political commentators are trying to run this narrative that the Liberals are moving too far to the right. Far right is a label that they often try and put onto an MP. And every time someone opposes something like, I don't know, a racial bureaucracy in Parliament, you're accused of being far right. Is this a tactic to try and push the Liberals toward the left and to get Liberals to agree to left-wing policy they never would normally agree to? Look, it's a tactic of the left-wing media, one, first of all, to denigrate those that they so label, but it also has a chilling effect on other MPs who say, oh, I want to be popular, I don't want to be framed as being far right, and therefore I won't join in on this particular debate or I won't issue a press release. So it has that chilling effect. But uh, I still recall uh, once at an airport, uh, my local media had yet again uh, uh, determined that I was far right. And I asked a Labor colleague at the airport, we're about to fly to Canberra, and I said, mate, if I'm far right, would it be fair to say that you're far left? And he smiled at me, chuckled and said, chances are you're right, Eric. And I said, but they never call you far left, do they? And he smiled and, it said, um, and he admitted and said, yep, that's right. And that's the sort of bias that we have in the media. Um, uh, yeah, at one stage it was alleged that I was in control of the Liberal Party in Tasmania, so I was this harsh power broker. My counterpart in the Labor Party was described as the matriarch. <laughs> and it's that sort of use of language that, yeah, if you're on the conservative side, you've got to be a nasty power broker. But if you're on the left side manipulating the numbers, you're a lovely matriarch. And... Yeah, I think to myself, this is the sort of bias that needs to be called out 
but unfortunately it isn't, and there aren't enough people on the conservative liberal side of politics to say enough is enough. And the reason they don't do it is they fear that they're going to be so tagged as well. But those that haven't feared about being so tagged, the John Howards, Tony Abbotts and our Peter Duttons, uh, they have been our successful leaders. And the reason is that I think the liberal slash conservative approach is one that lends itself to the inherent common sense of the Australian people. And when leaders give expression to those values like stopping the boats or having tax reform, stopping the carbon tax, people say, yeah, that makes sense. We're going to vote for it. And I think that is where leadership is needed. And this idea that you have to lick your finger and then determine which way the wind's blowing and then say, yep, that's my policy for today. And then a week later when the wind direction changes, oh, well, my policy's over here now. That does not get you what Robert Menzies used to say was the determination of success at an election, and that is respect. I forget the percentages, Alexandra, but he used to say one third will love you no matter what you do, one third will hate you no matter what you do. The task is, can you gain the respect of the other one third? And that is where firm leadership, pointing out why you're making unpopular decisions sometimes, um, get, gains you that respect and then delivers you the votes in the ballot box. And we saw the transition from the Tony Abbott landslide election victory to the near election loss under Malcolm Turnbull, uh, just what, 18 months after Malcolm Turnbull became Prime Minister, the turnaround was uh, horrendous from my point of view. It was a seismic in effect and people scratched their head and said, oh, we have to be even more like Malcolm Turnbull to regain, rather than saying, wait a minute, what was the difference between 2013 and 2016 um, between Tony's leadership and Malcolm's leadership? And it was the quality and the uh, in-depth policies that were being provided to the Australian people. And just, uh, you know, being a, what, a lamange basically of everything and nothing just doesn't cut it with the Australian people, and nor should it. They deserve good, firm, strong leadership with a sense of direction. And if I might say, the more conservative leaders tend to provide that for us. Well, I always laugh when so-called journalists or academics accuse a, uh, anybody in the Conservative Party. If you're a, a libertarian, they say, oh, you're a far-right Nazi libertarian. I'm like, right, okay. Because this is a complete incoherency of the European political history of those regimes during the Second World War because, of course, there was no capitalist, conservative, uh, democratic regime, regimes of the European continent during the war. It was basically a civil war between socialists, communists and Marxists. And when they said far right, what they meant was that you're far right of communism, but you're all still extreme left-wing collectives. And so it's uh, it just goes to show that our schooling system and all the uh, disgruntled communists who have been raising our kids have managed to basically rewrite European history of the war, which is quite astonishing. And what I am concerned about is liberals never correct them. They never give anyone a history lecture. Do you want to reply to that? Yeah, absolutely, Alexandra. That, that is where those of us in public life need to push back on those assertions. And uh, many a time I had to remind journalists that when they try to apply the Nazi label, 
remind them that in that name it was National Socialists. They never, oh. they, it doesn't matter if they print it, it doesn't matter if they run a headline, they don't read the word socialist and think it means socialist. They think, oh, it's not real socialism, which is something we hear quite often from the left. But look, Liberal voters were surprised by the behaviour of Liberal state and federal governments during COVID. They were particularly astonished that no public debates took place among Conservative leaders about civil liberty, human rights or the protection of body autonomy. There were no valiant defences made to protect freedom of speech from foreign social media companies. There were no pitchforks raised to keep some measure of humanity and dignity during the pandemic. Are you surprised that, regardless of what the Liberals eventually ended up doing, should there have been a more public debate and discussion about what was going on? Look, there should have been, and the um, uh, what closure of debate was uh, quite phenomenal. I, I used to do a fortnightly column for a newspaper, and uh, during COVID, I said, look, whilst I am double jabbed at that time and encourage people to get the double jab, I am willing to defend those that don't want to be jabbed. And we don't want a two-tier society or two classes in society, those that are jabbed and those that are not jabbed. And uh, the newspaper did not print that article. And uh, when I asked why oh, they were fact-checking it, I then finally got another newspaper to fact-check it. And uh, I was working with a professor in the medical field uh, discussing these matters. And when the other newspaper printed my opinion piece, the AAP fact checker from the Fairfax media onto my office immediately wanting proof of, or how can I assert these matters? Um, I was blessed to have a professor on board who was able to point to four uh, learned medical journal articles in peer-reviewed magazines uh, for each of the questions. So I just sent them off, this link, this link, this link, courtesy of the professor, and heard nothing more. But the closing down of debate and just shunning any alternate point of view was just horrific. And the mental trauma that the shutdowns occasioned, yeah, <laughs> There's an aged care facility next to where my electorate office used to be. And I had a man come in crying to my office. He wasn't allowed to see his dying wife because of somehow the threat of COVID. And I thought to myself, yeah, my goodness, can't we bubble wrap this man, take him to his dying wife, and if she contracts COVID as a result, which I would have doubted, but even if she did, and she died one day earlier, wouldn't it have been nicer for her to be able to pass holding his wife's hand rather than having her pass uh, by herself, lonely in a bed? Uh, and it's that sort of stuff that was never taken into account by the uh, medical authorities who only saw things from a particular point of view. And yeah, the, the analogy that I used many a time was, if we only talking about road safety, the speed limit would be what, Alexandra, about 40 kilometres an hour? I think it's what they're trying to put it into the UK, which is about two kilometres an hour. You can basically outwalk the cars. But Eric, I, I've never been vaccinated for COVID. I mean, I'm, I do have vaccinations, but I didn't like the COVID one, yeah. so I didn't take it. And I will never forget how fast uh, your friends and the people you knew socially 
turn on you and are prepared to throw you under the bus and into the clutches of an authoritarian government, which it was at the time. And once you've seen people that you thought you knew turn like that, you can't unsee it. You see the world differently. I mean, I understand the Second World War now. I understand propaganda um, far better than my history books could ever teach you because until you've seen how easy it is to use fear to turn a population against each other, you don't realise why it's such a powerful political tool. And I think I was most disappointed that, I mean, I, everyone expects the Labor Party to do that. That's a given. But to see the Liberal Party weigh into that, I thought was particularly disappointing. Personally, I think they need to apologise. I mean, even at these events at CPAC, you can see that there's still scars left over there. There's still annoyance and animosity. I think maybe Dutton should apologise on behalf of the party because we apologise for everything else. Maybe they should apologise to society for what happened. But let's go back to little young Eric Abetz. Your life has been one that revolves around politics. You were the youngest of six children, born in Germany and a migrant in the early 60s. Why did you gravitate toward politics? That's a very good question, Alexandra. I think it started uh, sort of in the Whitlam era where I was concerned about what was happening. And then when I hit university, I was immersed in this extreme left-wing culture and I didn't see many people actually pushing back on it. And so I thought, well, I'll, I'll run for student politics and uh, see what would happen. And might I add, when I joined the Liberal Club, thinking that this would be an organisation that would push back on the lefties, as we called them on campus, there was this, oh no, this is a left-wing campus. You know, we've got to be sort of left-wing light if we want to win seats. Even uh, then? Yeah, on the Students' Representative Council. And I said, look, I'm here to study. If I'm going to give up study time or work time to be on an SRC, I'm going to do it from the values and principles I believe in. So, I, so anyway... It, all of us ran as independents, but I was the one that said I'm a member of the Liberal Club, etc., and uh, put it out there. I got onto the SRC and I continually topped the poll on a left-wing campus because I was a voice that people said, yeah, that makes good sense. And so that sense of uh, public service, that sense of representation uh, became part and parcel of something that I enjoyed doing. And if I might say, my Christian faith also helped guide me in that regard, that our lives are not to live for our own self-gratification, but to be of service to others. And uh, after uni, I was blessed to be able to work as a lawyer for a while, then set up my own legal practice with a mate. And we did that, if I might say, exceptionally well. And uh, yeah, then got into the Senate and uh, was able to be of service to the people of Tasmania and Australia for their betterment, I trust. Well, I'm surprised that universities were that bad even then. I mean, they're, they're astonishingly terrible now. Even when I was uh, at university, it was the politics. I tried to join the Young Liberals and uh, all they wanted to do was stick photographs of themselves on polls for the next uh, you know, student election. They didn't want to talk about policy at all. But is there a lot of assumptions made by left-wing governments and left-wing groups that everyone at university must like left-wing ideas? Because when I was at Sydney, they decided to uh, temporarily get rid of the union fund there because uh, every student was forced to pay money into the union, the student union. 
And it turned out when it became voluntary that most people left the union. They were only being forced to be part of it. So this narrative that everyone loves the student union and it's so vital to the whole thing turned out to be a lie. And they had to bring back mandatory um, subscription because there weren't enough people voluntarily giving their money over. Well, Alexandra, that's what in fact got me absolutely motivated uh, in student politics because first of all I saw how left-wing it was. I didn't want to pay my money over so I made inquiries what would happen if I didn't pay this fee and I was told that the Vice-Chancellor would basically be acting as the shop steward by enforcing compulsion by withholding my results at the end of the year and the concept that the uh, right to a tertiary education is not predicated on your capacity to do a university degree, but on your capacity to pay a compulsory union fee uh, was against everything that I believed in. And in fact, uh, my parents went through an era in Germany where if you wanted to study at university, you had to be a member of Hitler Youth. And I saw those sort of comparisons and uh, I thought uh, that is something that needs to be opposed. And I sought to oppose it and told people on campus I stood for voluntary union membership, which members of the Liberal Club said that's too far right wing, too extreme. And of course the membership, uh, the uh, student body, a lot of them agreed with my approach. Imagine that for a Liberal Party to say, oh, you can't oppose union membership. You know, well, that's just out of control. But you served under two prime ministers. You had Tony Abbott and you had Malcolm Turnbull. As someone within the party in a senior position, how much does a prime minister shape the party to their personal political flavour? Like, did you notice a vast difference or was it more like a, a casual haunting where the prime minister of the day can kind of fling some furniture around inside the party machine but not fundamentally change it? Um, the leader within the Liberal Party has a great influence. John Howard's leadership was nothing short of superb and uh, he, he was able to keep the show together exceptionally well. There was a sense of loyalty, a sense of commitment, a sense of belief in what we were doing. Um, and so when John Howard was, for example, against same-sex marriage, and Tony Abbott against same-sex marriage. There was that amongst a lot of people uh, within the parliamentary party saying, oh, well, you know, uh, don't know which way, but chances are keep the status quo. Come Malcolm Turnbull, who was in favour, all of a sudden all those that weren't quite sure, all of a sudden were committed because they wanted the favour of the leader at the time. So the leader does have uh, quite an influence, which, I think is a sad reflection on those parliamentarians that are so influenced. You must have within your mindset, within your moral compass, within your foundational values, the belief of the, whether something is right or wrong, irrespective of whether your leader might say yes or no to a particular issue. And so that was, I must say for me, from time to time, disappointing to see how people would sway in the breeze, depending on what the view of the leader was, rather than saying, look, I like this person as a leader, but on this issue I happen to disagree with him or her. That is something that uh, uh, unfortunately we need more of in politics, that is, people of 
character. Of recent times, we've gone for the superficial far too often. Yes, well, I've never heard any uh, Liberal Party supporter or Conservative in general say that there's anything wrong with the stated party values. They are having a bone to pick with those in charge and their interpretation of the party values. But it gives me hope, Eric, if a, if a leader can, as you say, change the nature of the party, well, then maybe we can get back to conservative politics, um, particularly if Peter Dutton decides that he's going to, you know, really come out strong and uh, just go for it. But uh, come on, Eric, uh, you had a few brushes with the Greens and that party is fundamentally broken. Have they gotten better or worse since uh, you've left politics? Well, um when I was still in the Senate, I saw the spectacle of Lydia Thorpe, uh, Senator Lydia Thorpe, and I thought, my goodness, just at a time when I thought the Greens couldn't get any worse, here they are presenting us with Senator Lydia Thorpe. But she has since debunked uh, from the Australian Greens. I'm not sure why. But look, uh, the Greens are genuinely the watermelons of Australian politics. They have this green veneer but it's all Marxist doctrine inside. I would have thought you could be a genuine environmentalist and say you're a monarchist, or say that you're a genuine environmentalist and that you're against euthanasia or abortion on demand, or you support government funding for private schools or for private health insurance, whatever. But for the Greens, all those things are forbidden. You are not allowed. It is all left-wing extreme Marxist doctrine. But to try to give themselves a veneer of saleability to the Australian people, they say, oh, no, we're cuddly. We're protecting the koalas from the nasty developers. But what they're not doing is protecting our children from uh, cancel culture, from uh, the transgender agenda and other things that they're actively pursuing. And so that is where there has to be a greater analysis of what the Greens actually do. Yeah, I will never forget standing on a polling booth in the mid-north coast and we had a, an old greenie there, you know, you know the ones talking about the vegan looking yeah. things. And she was running around shouting, uh, greens for the koalas, greens for the koalas. At the same time, the greens policy was quite literally to cut down parts of the koala forest to put the wind turbines in. So I mean, it's an ideology that has completely shattered itself. And if you want to have fun on a weekend, by all means, grab yourself a cup of coffee and sit down and read the manifesto for the Greens because it's highly entertaining. It's the best fiction you'll ever see. But uh, Eric, do you have a uh, I told you so moment when it comes to the same-sex marriage bill? Because I know you're a prominent opponent. I know you copped a lot of hell for it during the time there. But given the saturation of glitter politics and the disturbing things that are happening to our children, not only here but across the Western world, do you feel somewhat vindicated by your concerns? Unfortunately, I do. Not that I'm sure that uh, it has uh, any consequence, but during the uh, gay marriage debate, I said that sex matters or gender matters, biological 
sex matters. And from my perspective, I said that, you know, the ideal situation for a child to be socialised is to have a male and female role model for the diversity of those two different approaches. You know, boys are different to girls, mums and dads are different in the way on their outlook, etc. And for a child to be able to grow up and see the diversity of both the male and female role model, I thought was very important and you couldn't discount that. And I said, if you do discount the importance of that, then the next issue would be the transgender agenda. And I was vilified, you know, there is nothing like that on the horizon. How dare you try to conflate these issues? And I was held down. And here we are a few years later with the transgender agenda with children literally being abused physically uh, far too young to decide, having puberty blockers being operated on in circumstances where we now know there are people that have now looked back and said, how on earth was that allowed to be done to my body? But this transgender agenda was a natural progression, I thought, from gay marriage. And when I pointed that out, vilified, etc. Here we are today. Those that are vilified, of course, Alexandra, never stop and say, oh, chances are Eric and those others who said it may have been right. There's none of that. It's just that, uh, you know, we are still nasty right-wingers. The fact that we want to protect children and look at the epidemiological evidence about children going through different uh, stages in life. And there was a, one young man in Tasmania that I met who said, Eric, I'm so happy I'm 25 today and not 15. And I said, what do you mean? He said, when I was 15, I had this idealisation I wanted to be a woman. It just came upon me and for 18 months, he had this idealisation that he wanted to be a woman and as, as quick as it came upon him, it left him. And he said, I'm now 25, but if I'd be 15 again, people might be pumping puberty blockers into me and my life may well be ruined. Well, you're, uh, qu you're quite right, Eric. I mean, I interviewed the wonderful Lelani on this channel mm -hmm. and uh, she was the most tomboyish tomboy you could ever have. And yet she became a page three model and girl and you know, now she's extremely feminine. And I used to love geology and science and dinosaurs and things. Well, you've got to be really careful now if you're a kid. If you look at the wrong toy or you wear the wrong colour, suddenly you're, uh, you're being dragged through the doctor's surgery. I mean, it's, it must be frightening being a child with so many adults in positions of responsibility looking at you as either a member of the new ideology or as a meal ticket for a ever-growing medical industry that sees you as a lifelong you know, conscript to the medical industry because you can't go back once you take on yeah. these things. Like, for me, when you start going after children, you've gone way too far. I can put up with the glitters and rainbows wrapped around my station you know, it, for a month of the year. I can put up with walking underneath the banners and flags all the time. But if you start going after children, I think society needs to sit down and have a conversation about what's going on. Alexandra, can I make one quick observation? Yeah, we have these uh, Mardi Gras weeks, Pride Month, etc. Fine, but let's stop and reflect. We have one Anzac Day. What is more important 
to the foundations of our society. We celebrate our veterans who died for our freedom on one day of the year, possibly a little bit on Remembrance Day as well. But on other things, you know, we have a NADOC week, we have Pride Month, whatever, whatever. And I just ask myself sometimes, what are the foundational values? What are we spending a lot of time on? Wouldn't it be good if uh, instead of having rainbows everywhere, we sort of had uh, little tributes to the veterans that said, that say, you are walking on free land with liberty because men and women were willing to die for that freedom and liberty. Instead, all that is airbrushed away, if not bulldozed away these days, in favour of other campaigns, which they might have their importance in their own uh, um, situation, but the extent of the concentration on them in comparison to other more foundational concerns uh, like uh, saluting and commemorating our veterans is just something that I think we as a society need to recalibrate. Well, if I was in charge of education, I'd make sure that that week would be dedicated to history, particularly the history of the war, so that people understand what led to these terrible conflicts and why we had to fight for freedom in the first place. As children don't even know why we were fighting what we were fighting for, which is a real shame. Now, let's talk about your new roles as the Australian Monarchist League and Campaign Director of the Vote No to the Republic campaign. Now, why did you join the Monarchist movement? Because, I mean, for most of the time, most of my life, the failed referendum that we went through and the Queen being such a, a wonderful monarch, there wasn't much talk of a new republic um, happening and Mr Bandana Man was enough of a put-off for most people. I mean, he doesn't, wasn't exactly selling the, uh, <laughs> the, the idea. So it's been in hibernation for a while. So what made you go toward that? Well, uh, after becoming uh, the chair of the No Republic campaign for the Australian Monarchist League, I uh, had to admit that I had lost the two uh, most prominent uh, advocates for the monarchy, namely Her Majesty and then Peter Fitzsimons when he resigned from the Republic movement. But look, uh, the constitutional monarchy is an institution that is worthy of protection. And when people ask me, why did I get involved in it? I'm doing this in a voluntary capacity because I want to ensure that future generations of Australians benefit from our wonderful constitutional monarchy, which sees us having our Governor General as our own head of state, so an Australian born in Australia, making decisions in Australia for Australians, just a wonderful institution where you become head of state not courtesy of an election or you defeated somebody or you owe somebody. It's like being appointed as a judge, as the protector of the constitution. And our constitution has served us so exceptionally well. In the democracy index of the countries of the world, the top five, three of them are constitutional monarchies. The worst 50 are all republics. And when I ask the question, how will Australians' lives be better served if we were to become a republic beside the cost of the referendum, etc. 
I can never get a coherent answer. But why has the Australian Monarchist League uh, stepped up further? We just opened our new campaign office in Sydney um, about a week ago. And the reason for that is that the taxpayer of Australia is currently funding an assistant minister for the Republic with all the trappings of office uh, and is going around the country talking to people, promoting the Republic, not giving the same funding uh, to the other side of the debate. So trying to stack the cards in a manner that is highly un-Australian, goes against every concept of equality, a fair go, etc. So we realise that we, as those that seek to defend our wonderful Australian constitution, might I add, drafted by Australians, in Australia, for Australians, voted on by Australians and adopted by Australians, is something that's worth fighting for. And I still don't know why the Republicans are doing what they're doing, trying to destroy a very, very worthwhile system. And one of the great things, if I may, Alexandra, when our men and women go overseas to fight for freedom, democracy and the values we believe in, they don't fight under the guise of Prime Minister Anthony Albanese or Prime Minister Scott Morrison. They serve under the crown, which is a unifying symbol. It's a bit like the Australian flag. Uh, whether you're Liberal, Labor, Green or whatever, that is our unifying symbol. Same with the Crown. Under that Crown of unity, we have our Liberal Labor Party bash-ups from time to time and all the ugliness of politics. But above all that is the Crown, which enables us to have a unifying focus for the benefit of our nation. Well, people often forget that uh, the more countries and nations that are part of the Commonwealth and who have the same head of state are extremely unlikely to ever go to war with each other. It is one of the best peacekeeping ideas in politics that we have ever had because it's not coercive like the USSR. It is a very loose bond, almost like a family where you've got different children, but they're not allowed to fight or mummy will be get very annoyed, or in this case, it's now daddy. And I think that we don't give that enough credit for holding together so much peace in the world, which is extraordinary given how often humans fight with each other. But did you always have the feeling that either the Labor Party or the Liberal Party would return to the question of monarchy? I mean, after all, politicians always strive toward absolute power. It's inherent in their species. And when people talk about wanting to get rid of the king or the monarchy, I say, well, it's going to be replaced by, you know, King Malcolm Turnbull or King Kevin Rudd. I mean, are you really sure that that's the future you want for this country? A, a very excellent point that you've made there, because you do need a head of state. You can either have a governor general or a president who will get a mandate, whether you like it or not. And even in Ireland, where they have a president in a parliamentary system, in 1990, when Mary Robinson uh, was campaigning for the presidency, she said, if I become president, I will be the most democratically elected person in the country because I will have been elected from the whole country and therefore I can look the Prime Minister in the eye and tell him off or that he should do certain things. Well, what you have then 
are competing mandates. We see what competing mandates do between the House of Reps and the Senate in Australia. Just imagine if you had another competing mandate between the Prime Minister and the President. We see what happens over the Pacific in the United States, where the President is in gridlock with Congress from time to time, uh, when the President doesn't like what the elected Parliament is doing over there. So what we would do is insert another mandate another friction point for stalemates, etc. And what sort of pressure would be brought to bear on the president if the government were making an unpopular decision and the president says, well, I've been elected, I want to get re-elected, I'm not going to sign this piece of legislation into law. Whereas under our constitutional monarchy, we know that the tradition is that the Governor-General signs into law on the advice of the government of the day. The reserve powers which the Governor-General has is just there to break the deadlocks, a bit like in our football games, if the ball gets tied up between players, the umpire blows the whistle, bounces the ball. That's what happened in 1975. And while Sir John Kerr is terribly vilified for simply doing the right thing, by the Australian people, there's a small element in the Australian community, especially from the extreme left, who say that that was somehow unjust. But allowing people to determine their own future by going to the ballot box is somehow a coup. I have no idea how you can have a uh, reference point to allow you to come to that conclusion. In a democracy, the people decide. That's what happened in 75, and they did so with a vengeance. Well, fundamentally, you don't really want your head of state to be a politician. I mean, you look at what happened when Her Majesty the Queen passed away. The streets all throughout her, the United Kingdom were lined with citizens, young, old, rich, poor. Every class was there and they were throwing flowers onto the streets. No one told them to do, to do that. This was genuine grief for the head of state. And it brings the country together. And you can see how if you've got a politicised head of state, you can't get that unification toward the single monarch at the top. And, you know, she was not political. She was there to serve the people. And people forget that in these days, a constitutional monarchy is not wielding power. It is there only to deny power to the politicians, which is why they don't like it. And that's why they've got such a big problem with it. But you noted before that the best and, and most free countries in the world are generally constitutional monarchies. The exception would, of course, be America. But what we are seeing now is the fragility of the American Republic once the American people forgot what it meant to be free and what it meant to be American. How much of that republic was not held together by its structure, but by the general um, emotion and feeling and ideology of the American people? And without it, are they in trouble? The common bonds that unite a nation are very important. And that is why having an independent head of state like we have with a governor general and then with a sovereign, what, what that provides is a point of unity above politics. When you have those mortal battles of uh, politics, like currently, and it's existed now for some time, between Clinton and Trump, then Trump and Biden, and now Trump and Biden again by the looks of things, uh, that divides the population and they then look to the head of state and they see Biden. They don't see somebody above the 
conflict that is going on at the moment. They don't see America. There's no the, unified version of America anymore. It's very much Democrat or Republican. That is exactly right. And that is one of the beauties of our system. It is unique in the world, but it works exceptionally well. Mind you, they are trying very hard to take away the unified idea of Australia and replace it with colonialism and Indigenous Australia. That is the idea of this voice referendum, to reformat Australia into a divided nation with treaties with itself, which of course is impossible. But the fate of the monarchy is tied, oddly, to the voice referendum, because if Albanese loses the voice referendum, which he very well might, do you think he will continue with his plans to host a referendum on the Republic right away? Or do you think he will? this will increase his chances of just cooling his heels if he gets a no vote? Because obviously it's embarrassing to lose a referendum if you're the sitting Prime Minister. What I think will occur, and this is what they said, that uh, the Republic proposal will come up in a second term of the Albanese government if re-elected. Uh, the voice will, if it gets carried, will undoubtedly give them heart. And I was on a Q&A program uh, some time back where the agenda was laid out very clearly. The voice, the republic, the flag, the national anthem. They want to get rid of the lot. And that, I think, to most Australians is um, anathema. It's not what they want for their country. They believe that there's a lot for which to be thankful in Australia. And you know, some of the myths that are being peddled, um, were there massacres of Indigenous people? Yes, they were horrendous. But what we're not told is that as a result of that massacre, seven white men were hung after they were convicted according to the rule of law, which tells us that the establishment at the time put a value on every single Indigenous life, that there were cowboys out on the frontier uh, shooting and killing Aboriginals. Horrendous, completely unacceptable, and the law of the land dealt with them. What we're not told is that in 1896, Aboriginal women in South Australia already had the vote before most of Europe gave women the vote. Aboriginal women in South Australia were voting. Why don't we celebrate these things? Aboriginal women in uh, South Australia voted for the referendum to make Australia, uh, or to make Australia into the Commonwealth of Australia. Uh, some wonderful pieces of our history that are just completely denied. Were there bad bits of our history? Absolutely, but there were also some very good bits of our history. We need to teach it all, but if we can continually reach back to the past and say, oh, there was uh, inequity here, this was unjust there, wind back everybody's uh, culture 200 years or more, and it gets pretty ugly, and I don't think it's a good idea for any of us, Let's say, where are we today and how can we forge a common future? And that is where the Indigenous leadership of Warren Mundine, Jacinta Price, Dr Anthony Dillon and so many others are just so refreshing that they want to be Australians literally one and all together forging a future and dealing with the issues at hand 
to ensure that Australia becomes an even better place. But this idea of division, Alexandra, where if you're an Aborigine, you have to think in a particular way, it is patronising, it is offensive. And I simply say, and I never thought I'd say this, but thank God for Lydia Thorpe. Does Senator Lydia Thorpe represent the Aboriginal voice or Senator Jacinta Price represent the Aboriginal voice? And you know what? They both represent an, an element of the Aboriginal voices in the community. And this patronising idea that they're all cookie-cutter replicas of each other is just so offensive from any angle that you look at this situation. And let's have a diversity of ideas within the Indigenous and Aboriginal community in Australia and give that expression. And you know what? We've now got Aborigines in the Liberal Party, National Party, Labor Party, Green, crossbenchers. And isn't that something we should be celebrating and saying, this is what Australia's all about and that is what Australia's doing. And as a result, our Indigenous Aboriginal community are finding a home in all the political parties of Australia. Fantastic news. Let's celebrate it rather than trying to corral them all into one particular uh, victimhood type status for which then big government comes over the top to somehow look after them. And that is why I think the Australian people are saying this voice, whilst initially they were minded to support it because of the goodwill we have to uh, those who are Aborigine or descended uh, from our First Nations people, those uh, 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 what? Well, what bothers me is that it's not just about truth-telling. We're watching a Marxist rewriting of Australian history, painting Australia not as it was, but as the victimhood Marxist ideology would like it to be. And you talked about the massacres that were instituted, not by the state, but by some individuals. Well, it's never mentioned how many colonial settlers, women and children, were speared to death in their homes over the years. It was a lot, and we don't understand that it was a massive cultural difference. This is 200-odd years ago. People were trying to understand each other. The world was a very different place. Our levels of knowledge were completely different. And it's never really mentioned that it was the largest gap in culture in human history when our two cultures met. And I think we did remarkably well and more to the point, our Australian nation was founded on the idea of a fair go, liberty and peace, which would make it one of the only nations on earth to be founded that way. And we should be very proud of what we've achieved. But as we come to the end, Eric, I'm gonna give you free run. I know you've been waiting for it. You have picked many bones with the ABC. I coined a term, a hashtag many years ago called go fund yourselves was my hashtag for the ABC. And uh, look, we're long past the days when the ABC was a fair and balanced broadcaster for the nation. Is it time to make them a subscription model? I think there's a case for a national broadcaster for the community service obligations within the community, but the ABC's reach has now gone far too far, spending taxpayers' money in all sorts of areas where the private sector more than covers it. Uh, the ABC in Ultimo lives in a bubble, in an echo chamber. It is not responsive to the Australian community and so dismissive 
of any criticism. Uh, I used to uh, front up at ABC estimates and ask the ABC all sorts of questions and basically the supercilious approach that uh, they do no wrong, how dare you suggest this, and our own in-house ombudsman determined that everything was fair, or the manager of um, uh, public affairs looked into this and determined that uh, their underling had done the right thing. It's just so hollow. What we actually need, I think, is a genuine independent ombudsman outside of the ABC. And the worst, most egregious issue of late has been the coverage of the coronation where somebody thought it was a good idea to put Stan Grant onto the program, onto the panel, and then give him carte blanche just to talk about the monarchy in a way that was just, quite frankly, uh, not based on historical fact. Uh, I was about to say unhinged, that might be a bit harsh, but look, it, it just had no basis in historical fact and to try to blame you know, the First Fleet and other things um, on the monarch. They had a parliamentary democracy in those days. Parliament was determining things and to try to lay the blame on the monarch for a massacre that occurred by some wild people on the frontier is just, it just defies any logic, any basic analysis and that our national broadcaster engages in that and then justifies and defends it, has seen the ABC uh, um, audience decrease considerably and they still get increased funding from governments. Might I add, even the Morrison government agreed to give them more funding. And, and I'll finish on this point. Yeah, I said in 2019, the ABC, we, we said the ABC wouldn't get more funding and we won the election. Fast forward to 2022, oh, we're going to give the ABC more funding and we lose the election. What's the answer? Promise them even more. And I say, yeah, let's listen to what the people of Australia have been saying on some of these issues. And the ABC really needs fundamental reform. And the Monarchist League, we put together a petition for uh, Australians to... Uh, express their disgust at the ABC's coverage of the coronation. And we got literally thousands, 10,000 people si signing our e-petition only to have Ita Buttrose basically dismiss it as uh, not relevant. And then she had the audacity to refer to the conservative people that uh, support the constitutional monarchy. The fact that we actually have Greens supporting the Australian Monarchist League, that Kim Beasley's electorate at the time voted against the Republic, just not a part of their thinking because they've got this uh, terrible vision. But look, I'm sure I've gone over time with that three minutes. So thank you very much, no, Alexander. That, that's okay, Eric, and it was very well said. And uh, although that's all we have time for here today, I'd like to say thank you for coming onto our show and for joining us here on ADH TV. Thank you. And that's all we have time for here today. Catch you next week.